Good day to you, and welcome to Fascinating. I am your host, Rick, from Planet Vulcan. My continuing mission on planet Earth, to search for signs of intelligence and to encourage its spread. I also gather evidence about Eknarangi, that is, knowing that which is not true, and try to discourage its spread. Contributing editor Slancha Nazdrovia has submitted the following listicle, aimed at helping earthlings who have until recently been unaware of any alternative to intelligent design thinking, who started their exposure to intelligent design thinking with their mother's milk, and who continue to hear nothing else but intelligent design thinking throughout their formal education. Slancha writes, Intelligent design thinking is bad science. And bad science leads to poor decisions and to much unnecessary stress and misery for humanity. In spite of this obvious proposition, and in spite of its progress in scientific circles, evolutionary thinking is making slow headway in many areas of thought outside the natural sciences. If you have by now at least been introduced to evolutionary thinking, and you are beginning to realize that you would benefit from substituting it for the intelligent design thinking we all grew up with, I believe you will find the ten hints that follow quite valuable as you try to make the transition. It can be quite confusing when you are shooting for an entirely new way of thinking, so be patient with yourself. Hint number one, most importantly, jettison the idea that the existence of order in natural or social systems can only be explained by supposing that it was the result of intelligent design. Come to the realization that order in any system can and does come into being by a process of spontaneous emergence. The phenomenon of emergent order is pervasive, and you will see it everywhere once you learn to recognize it. As the legendary Buckminster Fuller explained it, a system is organized by the energy flowing through it. I suspect that for a follower of a theistic religion, accepting the notion of spontaneous order will be especially difficult, because it undercuts an important element of support for belief in a divine creator, and thus casts doubt on the cherished hope of eternal life in paradise. Not an easy thing to give up on. This is not to say that acceptance of the phenomenon of emergent order and all that it implies will not also be difficult for those whose thinking is not theistic, but who have been convinced that order in our socioeconomic system is proof of intelligent design, that someone must be giving orders if you observe order, and that if you don't like the order that you see, the remedy is to become the one who is giving orders. For these people, the notion of spontaneous order undercuts an important element of support for belief in the efficacy of deus ex machina style intervention as a means to betterment of life on earth. Hope of success in political intervention presupposes the ability of persons to exercise the insights and powers that a deity would supposedly have, which, of course, persons do not have. 
and for intelligent design adherence in every camp, adopting the scientific way of thinking about order is likely to lead to vilification and shunning by those who stubbornly cling to the old ways and judge you as a heretic and a betrayer of your presumed pledge of solidarity. So be prepared for this, as people you thought were your friends subject you to abuse. And be prepared to comfort yourself with the fact that people who would do this to you were never your friends, and that ten years from now you will have lost contact with most of them anyway, even if you not had not strayed from the fold. Hint number two. Deep six the idea, which is practically an article of faith among intelligent designers, which says that all of history is properly explained in terms of struggles between social classes. This idea is a simple, easy-to-understand, wrong answer to the question of how to conceive of a social system in all of its complexity, that is, as a superorganism with a life of its own, and not something that is or can be under anyone's control. Hint number three. Continue by achieving an understanding of the theory of games to the point where you really get it that not every transaction within society can be described as zero-sum. Zero-sum says that there must always be a loser if there is a winner. A generalization that is the exact opposite of this is actually more valid. In the real world, most transactions take place for mutual gain. Else why agree to transact in the first place? And yet people cling with great tenacity to the notion that stems from zero-sum thinking that there must be victims everywhere simply because you observe winners everywhere. Hint number four. Recognize as hubristic the attitude which makes you believe that you and other members of what you regard as a natural aristocracy of benevolent despots have the ability to imagine a particular ideal social structure and that you can bring your ideal structure into being by gaining the authority to tax and spend and to employ coercive measures such as prohibitions and requirements with the aim of regimenting individual behavior. That trick never works, as Rocky was fond of saying to Bullwinkle. Hint number five, ditch the notion of a political spectrum described as left and right. This model was inherited from the circumstances of the French Revolution of 1789, where the supporters of the king and the ancient regime sat on the right side of the assembly and the supporters of the revolution sat on the left. The complexity of viewpoints in today's world cannot be usefully modeled in this way. Once you begin looking closely at the overused labels of left and right, you will see that in a lot of cases it just doesn't fit. And you have to notice that those who are commonly labeled as extreme left, for example communists, and extreme right, for example fascists, are more alike than they are different, distinguished from one another only superficially, and practically indistinguishable from one another in their manner of governance. There are many more facets of opinion and motivation to consider than merely the aim of preserving the status quo 
versus the aim of supporting change. It is crucially important to consider what kind of change, and you cannot, with justification, simply label anyone who opposes your proposed changes as right-wing. Hint number six. Understand that charitable action is not the only path to an increase in general well-being. Not only is it not the only path, it has made and will continue to make only a relatively minor contribution to the forces that are now operating, which benefit earthlings. Scientific discovery, technological innovation, the evolution of markets, and respect for human rights. And don't listen to anyone who tries to tell you that charity is something you owe. This is moral blackmail, and you should not pay. It only encourages them. And you will marvel at how liberating it is to be able to just shrug off the accusations of selfishness that will come your way. Most people do engage in charity anyway out of benevolence rather than out of duty, because human beings are hardwired to feel good about helping those who deserve help. You can be a completely moral person without engaging in charity if you just adhere to a basic morality which says that you must acquire ownership legitimately. Hint number seven. Reevaluate what you think capitalism is. You need to be aware that if you react with strong negative emotion to this term, it is because you have been conditioned like one of Pavlov's dogs by your education and by the cool zeitgeist generated by late-night TV and Hollywood. Capitalism has become a catch-all term, which is typically applied to anything that could be made to look bad under the prevailing narrative, a narrative which is based on the fallacious assumptions of class struggle and zero-sum interactions. That's too bad, because capitalism, without the connotations it has been stuck with, is important to understand. At its heart, capitalism is no more and no less than an evolved system, not a designed system, of production and commerce, which is based on the notion of individual freedom to make judgments and choices. From individual human actions based on the choices people make arise the ever-changing, functioning structures we see around us. It is simply wrong to say that there must be someone in authority who is imposing things on us if your only evidence for the proposition is the existence of order. Capitalism is the only process that deals with the unavoidable problem of scarcity. Scarcity is defined as the difference between the aggregate of what people want and the aggregate of available stuff. That is, people always have, and presumably always will, collectively want more than there is. Pious pronouncements about how everyone has a right to food, shelter, clothing, transportation, and medical care, etc., merely reveal that the speaker has not come to grips with the fact of scarcity. They just assume it away, even if they have heard of it, which many of them haven't, obviously. Some opponents of capitalism, to their credit, at least understand the problem of scarcity, but their solution is typically higher rates of taxation. 
not to their credit, is the unrealistic assumption that the sheep will consent to be sheared year after year indefinitely. Capitalism is a system based on competition. Many people believe that competition is the opposite of cooperation and that cooperation is better than competition because it's nicer. This is a false dichotomy because competition can be and usually is a form of cooperation. Businesses compete with each other for customers and consumers compete with each other for goods and services. And as long as no one is turning over the chessboard, that's a good thing for the economic system. You only need to look around you for evidence of widespread cooperation, making sure before you do the looking to remove any presumption that the transactions you are witnessing are zero-sum. People express worry that capitalists are going to have too much power and that we must have government as a countervailing power. But we must recognize an important distinction between power wielded by government and power wielded by a business. The distinction is that when dealing with power power wielded by a business, you can choose among competing substitutes. And you can even become a competitor. When dealing with power wielded by government, freedom to choose is not a thing. And there's another drawback to authorizing government to wield greater power in that it is commonplace for business interests to enter into corrupt alliances with government to the detriment of all those who are not politically connected. This phenomenon is so common that economists have coined a term to describe it, regulatory capture. Witness the current attempt in the tech industries to support regulation of themselves. Hint number eight. Reject the notion that justice and egalitarian outcomes are one and the same thing. The only foundation of justice that makes sense, if you believe in equality, is fair play. Fair play might lead to more or less egalitarian outcomes, or it might not. At any rate, outcomes must be considered to be fair and just as long as the process is fair. The question, does LeBron James make too much money, should be replaced by the question, does LeBron James get his money legitimately? And consider for a moment exactly how an attempt to implement something like income equality would work in practice. The presumption that the advocates of redistributing are making is that income inequalities are due to institutional arrangements that have been designed to reward a class of oligarchs. So all you will really be doing by redistribution is to compensate for this fact, stealing from the stealers. The support for this presumption comes just from the statistical fact of unequal incomes, which is all the proof a shallow thinker needs to agree there must be dirty pool being played. Classic example of circular thinking. But the fact you will have to face, if you're the one in charge of the leveling, is that the income which is generated within the productive process naturally tends to flow to those who are creating value. More value, more income. Less value, less income. 
So, if you wish to achieve equal outcomes, you'll need to contrive some way to, uh, let us say euphemistically, divert income from those who are creating lots of value to those who are creating less value or no value. And you will have to concern yourself with the feedback effects of your diversion in the form of the altered incentives that will now be facing those whose income you are diverting. Those who are creating the value tend to get very stuffy about what they regard as the theft you are perpetrating, and they will employ all sorts of ingenious tactics to oppose your contrivances, including simply moving to a different jurisdiction like a European soccer player. Or maybe they will just stop trying as hard, or even retire. And of course, it is also true that your diversion will alter the incentives that face the recipients of your largesse. When you implement policies which realign incentives, even though it was not your intention to do so, People stop behaving the way you need them to behave if your scheme is to be sustainable. This incentive problem, one of several chronic problems with this type of social engineering that economist Friedrich Hayek pointed out, will inevitably lead to the imposition of coercive measures by those in authority. Many of you, out of the kindness of your hearts, still wish to cling to the idea that engineered Outcomes is something in the realm of possibility. It's not. Not even if people voted unanimously for it to be so. Nature allows us to choose means but not ends. But what about the demonstrated fact that people feel bad when they compare themselves to those who are better off? How can we possibly help them without income redistribution? There is an obvious and simple response to this question. Stop igniting envy and fanning the flames by telling people to compare themselves with others, by telling them that they're being cheated and telling them that their work has no dignity. There's really no point to the exercise unless you're recruiting people for an ideological crusade. Studies of happiness and life satisfaction have revealed that unhappiness and dissatisfaction are what emerge from this practice. Happiness and satisfaction do emerge from living as a proud, productive adult with a good family life. Hint number nine. Understand that not all relationships among humans can be characterized as power relationships. This might have been true and might still be true, in past and present hierarchical societies. But in advanced economies in our world today, most relationships are consensual and contractual, and between those who are equal before the law. Hint number 10. Be wary of factions, coalitions, and parties. Always remember that your first loyalty must be to ideas and that party loyalty is frequently at odds with consistently good ideas. And if you are loyal primarily to ideas, you and others who are loyal to the same ideas will, by coincidence, and not by solidarity, be aligned. Thanks to Slancha for this article. 
I hope many earthlings will find value in this advice. I invite you to have a listen to the next installment of Fascinating. Please provide feedback to these podcasts if you are so inclined. You may contact me by sending an email to Senior Contributing Editor Prego Denada, pregodenada at gmail.com. If you find the lessons from nature in these podcasts personally valuable, please recommend it to your friends. Theme music, coming back to life, with thanks to Pink Floyd. Live long and prosper. Savor your experiences and treasure your memories. And respect nature's wisdom. <laughs>